Tonight I'd like to give um, an overview of this Brahma Vihara practice. Aside from the sittings and walkings that you already have been doing for two days, we started to create this uh, fabric of the Brahma Viharas as soon as we came together and and took the the vows of silence and the the precepts. In fact, precepts, in one way of looking at it, is uh, the restraint from any kind of harm, but uh, in Burma, they also look at it in in the way of its expression, which are the Brahma Viharas. You know, non-harming is expressed through metta, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Uh, so, you know, uh, sometimes it feels really good to take refuge in that way. In fact, the the Buddha said the whole universe is held together by the fabric of the Brahma Viharas. And should that fabric start to unravel, that's when the universe collapses. You know, so we're contributing to that um, in, a, in a big way, in a large way, uh, but also in the, the creation of the, the non-ordinary space and time of a retreat. You know, after a few more days, There'll be moments and longer moments where uh, the time concept and space content concept fall away. It becomes more like mythological space and time. And, and that's reality. That's much more reality than, the, than the, the watch concept of time. And uh, the, the way we hold visual perception and and beings and people, and then immediately like or dislike and, or, and judge them and so forth. So it's, impo- it's really important, you know, to maintain this sacred sense of, uh, of space. Like the Buddha himself, Michelle and I, after 30 years of teaching, do our best to... Um, to give it all, you know, to share everything, whether it's a, a weekend retreat or a three-month retreat. And the Buddha himself once said, uh, I do not teach with a closed fist. I teach everything as it is, meaning there's no secret teaching. It's not holding anything back. So we regard ourselves as spiritual friends or guides um, to share what you know, what our calling is. We both came at this um, very young. Over two-thirds of our life, you know, it's been this sharing. Uh, and we're really grateful to all of you, you know, who come and receive it and take it in and, and bloom yourself, make it your own. You know, see how all these teachings aren't about the words and the concepts that you hear, but however they stir you to do the practice, you know, and uh, agree to what Wendell Berry, the essayist and farmer from Kentucky, called reduced circumstances and uh, setting of limits. And what he meant by that, you know, the only way a flower or a friendship can bloom is, is through reduced circumstances and the setting of, of limits. You know, that's how, you, that's how we make a garden and keep weeds out, make sure it gets water and the right amount of heat, not too much, not too little of either. So in that way, you know, we're following this, um, these reduced circumstances and setting of limits by the noble silence and the, the precepts and leaning into the Brahma Viharas so that they become the fabric of our being, which they are. Even though um, metta is listed first, it's you know, one of the paradoxes of, of teaching, because words come out in a, in a linear way and, and 
Buddhism is full of lists, three of this and five of that and the seven of those and the nine and the ten and the twelve and so forth. Um, but, but most of those are, are all intertwining or cyclic, you know, and they belong together. So start by saying every, mount, every moment of metta, all four Brahma-viharas are up. And as a meditation, we just, we're focusing on them, learning to focus on them, mostly one at a time. But, you know, as we learned this morning, the, sometimes compassion naturally arises because we're hurting, you know, or we feel grief or sadness. So that's, that's the way it really works in the world. Uh, but because this is a, like a training, um, we want to know the taste, the fragrance of each of these separately. The first three are very similar and sometimes hard to, to know the, the unique fragrance of the metta and the karuna and the mudita. Um, and the other thing is to realize that these four primary spiritual emotions are, they, they are the heart. You could say that all emotions evolve or eventuate into these four, you know, these, these four facets of, of the one heart or the one mind. You know, in that way, it's a little easier to practice. So we're not, we don't feel this stress or push to get the metta and then get the next one. You know, compassion and the joy. They're all going to come up. In fact, we couldn't even do the metta without equanimity already being there because it would slip and slide into its so-called near and far enemies. There's different ways we'll keep saying this. Practicing these Brahma-viharas brings the, wis- the wisdom to know the difference. You know, sometimes we're practicing metta, uh, but when we express it and turn our own understanding on it, we, we realize that it's, it's actually compassion because the, uh, the focus of experience is some kind of hurt or distress or anxiety or fear, right? And we can use metta with that, but it often just comes more naturally to, to, to care for that pain. So, you know, in this overview, I, I will talk exactly why or how you can, we can distinguish metta from uh, compassion, for example. Metta both softens and strengthens the heart, uh, thereby allowing us to open to all experience, you know, everything that happens to us in life, all the pleasure and all the pain, all the gain and loss and praise and blame, uh, honor, dishonor, um, and switching from a concentration-based practice like metta and the Brahma-viharas to Vipassana, it, uh, it brings a lot of moisture and elasticity, and uh, it's the core of the non-judging aspect of Vipassana mindfulness, uh, the accepting part of it. Every moment of pure mind, of Vipassana mindfulness lifts up these four Brahma-viharas. You know, why not? They're already there. And, and mindfulness is such a powerful, skillful, magnetic state that it, it draws it up. And the reason why, you know, when we feel that moisture of metta, for example, in dealing with um, anger or fear when it comes up in a Vipassana practice, it's, it's just the Brahma-viharas that is assisting the mindful knowing of what's happening. So where is, you know, where are these Brahma-viharas? We're told that they're an inherent part of ourselves. And we've been living however long we've been living, you know, 25 years or 70. And, uh, you know, how come, how come they're not there more often? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, and here's an analogy that might be helpful. Uh, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, uh, 
the one known as chief in wisdom, Sariputta, uh, next to the Buddha probably gave the most discourses, especially instructive ones. So he was giving a discourse once on um, honest self-assessment. You know, that is really looking clearly at ourselves and without judgment, you know, and without um, arrogance or conceit to see what's really there uh, without pushing away what we don't like or grasping what we like. Uh, I'm reminded of the, the Russian writer Fedor Dostoevsky who said, lying to oneself is more ingrained than lying to others. So it gives a hint at why Sariputta would, you know, devote a whole discourse to honest self-assessment. So we have to look again and again and again and unlayer all that resistance and all the stories we've built up about ourselves and survival strategies and defense mechanisms and so forth. You know, and it's not like we're living a lie because we're bad people. It's, it's because we're trying to survive we're seeing things that we want to see instead of seeing things as they really are out of a, a deep urge to, to survive. You know, what may have been really difficult or what we didn't learn, how we didn't learn to live. And so, you know, we create these protective measures. That's why it takes, um, you know, a lot of care, a lot of metta and compassion to, to see with this this honest self-assessment. And then the analogy he used was, you know, imagine a, a bronze bowl that's been in a basement for decades. And the people living in the house, you know, they go down and get firewood or they store their grain and, and so forth. And the bronze bowl has maybe just lost its use. And a gaze at it is just a dark object, you know, a, a dark sort of bell-shaped object. And then one day someone picks up that bronze bull and takes it outside in the sunlight and looks at it and, and it feels the, the sticky outer core of it, you know, and then decides to see that stickiness comes off and picks up a cloth and starts to rub the tarnish and rub and rub and you know, the tarnish changes a little bit and it comes off on the rag, keeps rubbing again and again and again and again. And then suddenly, the nature of the bronze shows itself. The luminous nature of the bronze shines, you know, brilliantly with this incredible luminosity. It's exactly what we're doing in, in meditation. Either the wisdom of Vipassana practice or these Brahma-vihara practices. It's like again and again, a moment of metta is a little more of the rubbing and polishing and moments where we feel, you know, actually feel and even see the luminosity, feel it in the body and see the luminosity inwardly and outwardly, in nature in, as well as in ourselves. Just That's how this works. That's how these Brahma-viharas work. They begin to break down the barriers of separation. In fact, um, one definition of metta, you know, in addition to being a non-possessive love, a selfless love, or love without self-referencing, is, uh, is breaking, breaking the barriers. You know, all the way, all the inner, internal barriers. Well, I don't like that part of myself. I'm not going to look at it, or pretend it's not there, or suppress it, and and imagine that I'm this way or, you know, all the ways we may either numb out or, re, or create some fantasy of ourselves or live a life kind of always on guard, you know, not quite sure who we are and where we are. Um, the breaking of the barriers is like bringing all these split fragmentations of the mind together the way streams of trickles of water come together and make this very smooth, cohesive, coherent pond. You know? So that's, that's how metta feels when it starts to go, uh, starts to bloom, starts to um, have a momentum. 
it, it starts to calm our body and calm our mind and, and the sense of bringing it together into this oneness. You know, in, the, in the same way, as I said, all emotions uh, evolve or eventu- eventuate in, in all of these four Brahma Viharas where uh, we feel like this very integrated, coherent, peaceful, tranquil being. That's our, that's our potential. That's what's behind all the distractions. Uh, Michelle, I think, mentioned briefly, maybe last night, um, the, the near enemy of um, metta. It means it's a masquerade, something that may look and even feel like metta. But there's, if we look really carefully with that honest self-assessment, it's, it, it feels like there's some hook feels like there's some condition. It doesn't quite feel completely unconditional love. You know, love with, with no uh, agenda. So to, to explore the, the, the masquerades, you know, what we call the near enemies, is to start to know uh, love with expectation or love with some conditionality or sentimentality. Because there does feel like there's some kind of a hook there, uh, rather than that relaxed and integrated feeling and uh, selfless, uh, one heart, one mind feeling or sensation of the metta itself. So it's our, it's our job to understand these states very well, not to reject them, not to push them away, uh, only through understanding them in this practice or in the Vipassana practice? Uh, do they, as distractions to our practice, fall away? Or we start to feel a protective uh, seclusion, what's called viveka. It's like this, this field of um, solitude and seclusion where the distractions or invasions of hindrances either don't get in or only rarely get in. And when they do, we have a, enough power of awareness or metta to, to know what to do with them, you know, to transform them or let them go. <clears throat> Love with conditionality. Can f- might feel something like this Holly Hughes poem called Mind Wanting More. Only a beige slat of sun above the horizon, like a shade pulled not quite down. Otherwise, clouds. Sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mind wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds, an osprey to stitch the sea to sky with its bared wings, some dramatic music, a symphony, perhaps a Chinese gong. But the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun, one more clear night in bed with the moon, one more hour to get the words right, One more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket of dried grasses. As if if this quiet day, with its tentative light, weren't enough. As if joy weren't strewn all around. So it's important to feel, and you know, she makes beautiful poetry out of the mind wanting. Uh, the attitude with, with, with which we attend to the kinds of masquerades, you know, love with expectation or sentimentality, is not one of rejection. You know, uh, it's, it's just recognizing that that part of the mind that's um, not yet filled with total, unconditional, loving acceptance we have to learn 
uh, when it changes, because it can change, can move very quickly, be from metta to a wanting kind of um, attitude or sensation, and then again this pure, open acceptance and allowance and feeling of integration, and then again, you know, some judgment or doubt or fear, and just to know that movement and understand it starts to create that that we wake up, that place of uh, protection, seclusion from in too much invasion of hindrances. And the far, the far enemies are, of course, the opposite. Fear, ill will, anger, frustration, resentment, um, aggression, violence, war. You know, all those forces... When, when one doesn't have some sort of pa- guiding path through life, and you know, the habit is either of wanting or rejecting, you know, just fear of life or grasping to life, it can, it can easily move from a, a simple ripple of irritation you know, all the way up to aggression and war. It, it's not hard to see that progression in the world today. It's the strength of, um, uh, of this affectionate awareness that gives direction away from being distracted and, and, and toward the stillness and integration of metta and in the melting or the breaking of the barriers in, in, in gentle transformative ways not with stress, you know, not with violence. It's easy for ourselves sometimes to approach our practice with a kind of violence, kind of mental aggression. Important to recognize that. And just realize that you know, every metta moment is polishing the tarnish off the luminous heart, the, the natural, innate, luminous heart. Michelle may have mentioned the, the proximate cause last night, you know, of being able to attune to people's or other living beings' um, beauty, goodness, worthiness, um, and and that's a good reason why uh, generally, generally it's skillful to start with ourselves as the primary meta subject, because until we connect to our own sense of worthiness and value and goodness and, you know, the gold within, we may, we may find it difficult to see that and feel that in others. And so the proximate cause for metta is just another clear reason why it can be hard to find. Um, again, that honest self-assessment to recognize how... Um, we hide from our own feelings of unworthiness and shame and retreat from the world and retreat from expressing our nature and so forth. There's many conditions for that to happen and has nothing to do with who we are. It has to do with the causes and conditions that have you know, arisen in our, over our lives or our lifetimes, you know, karmic conditions or genetic conditions, what's been passed down. So recognizing the strength of of metta, even though it can be, you know, soft like water and and melting of conditions uh, and make us feel that oneness with the world, it doesn't mean it makes us vulnerable to intrusion or violation. It's very powerful and very strong at the same time. Uh, metta itself can weaken and help uproot all the burdens, all the distractions, the hindrances, mm-hmm. the doubt, the anxiety, the fear, anger, desire. Uh, 
these are all the opposites of metta, and or the masquerades, what looks like it. Each of these Brahma Viharas has um, this um, quality of transmission uh, in two ways. Transmit within ourselves and transmit uh, outwardly to others. So within ourselves, it awakens that feeling of friendliness where we start to feel uh, completely friendly to ourselves. And in the beginning, it means feeling friendly to all the parts of ourselves that we also don't like, you know, that we want to reject or hide from or um, numb out or feel indifferent to. So that's a powerful, that's a powerful force to, to feel this friendliness or inclusion, you know, non-exclusion uh, to every part of our being, every cell of our body and emotions and mental states. And we'll, we'll, we'll see as this retreat goes on how these Brahma Viharas skillfully replace um, defense mechanisms which worked well, uh, but at a cost. Defense mechanisms like the shield of anger or aggression or just a crust of leather over the heart where we don't feel anything, you know, our, our, our ways of judging everything. It just gives us some sense of identity and uh, something somewhere to place the mind. But it's all a distraction. You know, it's all a way of, of not really getting to ourselves. So when we're in a safe place like this, we can begin to see how we use these uh, less healthy uh, survival strategies and, and how powerful and useful and, and totally skillful the Brahma Viharas are at doing the same thing, uh, but at benefit, not at any cost, not taking anything away from us. You know, anger um, or just numbing out to life is a kind of you know poison to the system. It's not healthy for the body, not, he- not healthy uh, for emotional life. It doesn't expand our psychological awareness and so forth. So that transmission to release this, this, um, this catalyst of friendliness in our own body, you know, in our own heart. And as far as others, it's, um, it's helping them to awaken to their own worthiness. And, and how that works is um, you see it and you speak to it. They might not even know they have it, but you speak from your depth to their depth. You know, and they, you might see that they're afraid or you might see that they're um, wanting something or, you know, you, you might see their behaviors that aren't integrated with who they really are. But you also have this sort of attunement to their value uh, as beings, as living beings, their worthiness, their gold, their goodness, whatever you want to call it, their beauty. And speaking to that has this tremendous effect on them. They don't know what's happening. Because as, as of yet, they may not even know, you know, they have not in touch yet with their, with their value or worthiness. So that's a powerful gift. That's a powerful transmission that radiates out. So you can, you can translate that when we're abiding, for example, in a field of metta, quite automatically that uh, quality of goodness that's the core of metta is, is affecting other people. And they start to feel good for no reason at all. And they wonder, you know, why am I feeling good, you know? I'm supposed to be feeling bad. That's the way I am and I always have been. To, to test our practice sometimes, Saida Upandita uh, used to ask uh, this question. Um, imagine yourself out in the forest with your benefactor, your best friend, a person toward whom you feel indifferent, that is not much, of, you know, neither like or dislike. 
and your enemy. And along comes a group of robbers. And, um, you know, they take all your whatever is of a value. Um, but they also put you to a test. You know, they tell you or me, we're going we're gonna to let you go, but you have to choose one of you to be killed. Either you or your benefactor, your best friend, or the person you're indifferent to, or your enemy. So Sayadaw would, you know, smile and says, you know, who are you going to choose? Some people would say, well, um, my enemy, or maybe the neutral person, or maybe myself. But of course the real answer is, it's impossible to choose, it's impossible to differentiate when you're in touch with everyone's uh, core worthiness and value. You see it even if, you'll see when we're practicing equanimity, for example, we, we, we take as the equanimity subject a neutral person where there's neither affection or dislike. And you, you'll see very quickly how you feel a connection with a total stranger that way. Um, and even working with, with enemies, and we always suggest to choose um, um, a, less, a less difficult, difficult person, right? To get it going. And then Upanita, just to say, if you, have, you know, if you have a really strong enemy, leave him out altogether. Because the aim isn't to, to fix all these things and all these people and all these threats and all these loves of our lives. The aim is to continually uh, polish our own heart, to continually bring out our own luminosity. That's the aim. Then, just by who we are, we're going to affect everyone, by how we live, by how we see things and hear things and smell and taste and touch things and how we speak, you know, and uh, how we think, what we do with our bodies. So it's a total immersion. And that's why we call this a, you know, um, particular form of practice that um, Michelle and I teach, the sixth sense field um, Brahma Vihara practice. Because slowly, you know, we're giving you various ways of practice so you can find what's yours, you know, make it your own. And then we'll go about what we all have. You know, we all have sight and, you know, more or less hearing. Some of us are losing uh, hearing as well. And in, in our visual uh, clarity, dimming. And maybe it's a little harder to get all the fragrances and taste and so forth. But we have enough of the, the faculties working that they can become powerful containers for these Brahma Viharas, as you'll see. And that way, transformative. If we think of um, the metta heart as this, as this warmth, as this generous heart nature that, that opens to our, ourselves and other beings um, and connects, you know, um, a primary function of metta and all the Brahma Viharas is connecting because everything is connected. But it's not just a... Um, you know, cliche. It's not just poetic. Everything is intimately connected and interconnected. And that's why these practices are, are restorative. We start first feeling reconnected with, with ourselves as we really are. And then the distances that's, that uh, appear to be out there in, in other people uh, that we immediately might categorize and, and ponder and judge and like and dislike and so forth or out there meaning all of nature, you know, all that starts to give way. That's the power of, the connective power of the Brahma Viharas. So just imagine this connective warmth of the heart when it, when it touches pain, hurt, um, anxiety, sorrow, sadness. What might that response be? You know, it'll either be one of the conditioned responses we know uh, that will be uh, 
as I'll point out, one of the masquerades or near enemies. Or it'll be this genuine, authentic, caring concern that we call karuna or compassion, wise compassion or fearless compassion. Because genuine compassion is not afraid of any kind of suffering. You know, and we're practicing all of these just for moments of experience. And later the, the moments increase. It's not a state that we're trying to attain. They're just moments. So the flow of metta and the flow of karuna become more frequent. You know, so again, wisdom will, will tell us when uh, we're touching a near enemy, like sorrow or grief or pity, uh, which generally are not pleasant states in the body or as emotions. The difference between that and a moment of this uh, authentically kind, caring concern for wherever we feel pain in ourselves or in in others or in the world. And, and that discernment, it becomes very clear because compa- this genuine compassion is always pleasant. Real compassion is always a pleasant feeling tone. That's how we will be able to distinguish between one of the masquerades of sorrow or, or grief or fear of the suffering, of course. Um, and then utilize that compassion, you know, to be with those states uh, that we should legitimately feel and understand of grief, of sorrow, you know, of fear of suffering. And at times, we should definitely, um, mindfully, intentionally make a shelter for our grief. You know, there's real things in all of our lives to grieve for, including ourselves, you know, parts of ourselves, and, uh, and, uh, and friends and family and animals we love and the world we love. There's lots to grieve for. But the difference between compassion and grieving is that if we, if we use grief or sorrow as a constant lens in which to view what hurts, then we will just feel pain ourselves and we won't feel that, that real powerful transformative capacity of compassion. Because people know, you know, like being with my father when he was dying, and I was lucky to be with both of my parents um, when they were dying. And I felt a whole lot of things, you know. I felt, I felt the trickle of tears, moisture down my face, uh, cheeks, and I, and I felt fear, and I felt um, sadness, and I felt grief. Uh, but I also felt um, gladness and, and, and an appreciation, you know, and I felt r- really lucky to be there to to guide him out and to say, to tell him, to thank him for all he did, you know. And the last eight months that we had spent together and got really close again as father and son. And so all these emotions were there and I, I would say they were all held by this container of presence. And, this, and, and the presence mostly had the element of this compassion you know so some of the tears were just out of the gratefulness of being with my dad you know as long as i had for you know his, the 90 years and all that he did for me and how it's how grief can be felt but also transformed into gratitude and it was the first time i really was able to you know ex- ex- experience that in a visceral alive way because there were the tears and there was the grief and, and fear and sense of loss and all that. And then the this, this strength that I had um, to be generous, to be there for my father and to know um, that like any of us, 
he, he would want my caring compassion, you know, my love for him to be there and not just be lost in the sorrow or the grief, you know, and be tugging or sort of self-referencing that and drowning in the sorrow and grief. So that's what's possible and that's why we need to recognize these near enemies and learn how, when they're useful to feel and how we move on, how they evolve into, you know, one of these primary spiritual emotions. So that gratitude is woven innately through all four Brahma-viharas. So we see one who's, you know, clearly hurting in some way, physically, emotionally, psychologically, uh, spiritually. You know, it may be a brief time of, of their suffering, of their pain. It may be a long period. It might, for some of the people that we know in our lives, um, it's a lot of suffering, a lot of the time or most of the time. And it, and compassion, karuna, can also be felt as a sensation towards someone we may know well, who on the surface seems really happy and seems to have everything they want and are living happily. But because we know them and we see that they're doing things that will eventuate in their own pain and suffering or others' pain and suffering. You know, how they're handling what is bringing them ha happiness um, is not so generous and not so skillful. So we can feel compassion for someone whose hurt is eventual, you know, is sure to come. You know, it's easy to practice on our, our, our pets, our children. You know, when Pasha is upset, you know, or or crying or angry. You know, Pasha is just a natural-born anarchist. And he's this now seven-year-old boy, and he's always into everything at once. And if you saw him yesterday, he was totally covered in, in, um, in that um, um, permanent ink kind of pen, you know, all over his arm and face and whatnot. And then crumbs of chocolate all over his face. And his mom said, have you been eating anything? Said, no. No, I haven't. But I find I find with Pasha that when he's kind of really upset, and uh, I've known him a long time, and we're from um, when he first arose in the world, uh, nearly um, most of his seven years. So we're very close, and um, and what I was just saying a while ago. I, I see his gold, you know. I, I see this inner create, creative spirit, his goodness. And, and when I talk to that, whatever he might be anxious or afraid of or grasping for, just starts to give way. Because his inner beauty is being mirrored. So he you know, doesn't know, really know it yet, Sometimes, you know, he certainly feels his, his power in his seven-year-old little body. Um, but these are sophisticated, inner, deep things. He's lucky to be born into a, a, a Dhamma family, and he's been at many retreats now. Sometimes he comes up and sits next to me, and uh, he, I ask him if he wants to say anything, and he says, uh, you can say it for me. You know? <laughs> so you might see him sitting up here sooner or later. Um, and I have felt the same kind of mirroring in the... Um, around 1984, this, this man, this um, revered uh, iconoclastic Zen master named Paul Reps came to live with... with uh, Michelle and I and Chandra at our, at our home in Honolulu. And he was 87 at the time. And he had already been practicing since he was like 17. He'd been to India and Burma and Japan and 
you know, you'd been to all those places when they still had wild tigers and um, and and deeply practicing um, skilled masters of meditation. Uh, so you know he took up his his own thing. He didn't need all the uh, vestments of being a, a a Zen teacher. He didn't need the the transmission and you know to to, to take on ceremoniously all those aspects. In fact, he made fun of them. In fact, he made fun of everything and made fun of everyone. When he came to our, our house, he just had a small day pack and was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, which is all he ever wore. And he walked right into the room, at the living room, and then in the kitchen towards his studio where he was going to stay. And he stood in front of the refrigerator and the first words out of his mouth in our home was, there's the enemy. And we learned very quick not to ask him what he meant because <laughs> he would just turn you around, you know, and, and you'd, and you'd run, run away. So we've still, all these years later, been, you know, was he talking about the, the Freon gases <laughs> at that time? Was he talking about, you know, hoarding food instead of the times when food was shared and the fact that it's not fresh market food and we've never been able to figure it out. And then once he came up to Chandra with a papaya rind and an and a avocado rind, which was his basic diet for the whole year, he stayed there, and said to Chandra, what do I do with these? And Chandra said, well, you put them in the compost pile. And he said, well, where's the, uh, where's the compost? And Chandra said, uh, in the corner of the yard. And Rep said, there are no corners. <laughs> and so you know, if you think of the universe are there really any current corners anywhere <laughs> but I didn't ask him what he meant and certainly Chandra didn't either but this is what he was really good at you know he, he knew his Zen practice really well and even made fun of that he said should never practice more than 10 minutes because you're less likely to make a mistake <laughs> but he was very uh, praising of the mistakes we made. You know, if we don't make mistakes, we're not going to learn. So it was really hard to figure him out. You know, because he'd say one thing, then he'd say the other. He'd have his uh, Dharma groups in his in his large studio on Sundays, and uh, and I had a Dharma group uh, for Vipassana on Thursdays. But he always sat at and. And he learned. He learned Vipassana. Um, and he was really took interest in it. In fact, while he was there, he wrote a book. Actually, six short books that he called Six Books in a Bag. And he, he made us do all the work of folding them up and then putting them in a manila envelope. And then you know, getting them printed and selling them. He was a character. He was a, a calligrapher. Artists and uh, and um, and haiku poet. So after my talks, he'd take me into a room, and he could see what I couldn't see, you know, or I couldn't admit to. He, he could see certainly he could see what I was overwhelmingly feeling, and that was a. Um, um, massive terror of public speaking which took me 10 years actually to get over so he could see that and then he could see I was I was trying you know out of my depth I'd just come back from practicing years in in Burma in the monasteries and so he'd say you know you're not Mr. Upandita you know or you're not uh, Mr. Burmese Buddhist, you're, you're who you are, you know, you're um, Hawaiian American, you have your own experience, and you have your own stride to find. He would say that to that place of worthiness in me that I had not yet felt, and you know, was not yet resting in. So I took that in, never as a criticism, 
you know, most others I would feel judged and I'd feel afraid or resentful or so forth. But he always had an immediate way of, of, my, of, of my feeling his affection. I didn't know how, but now I know, you know. He was just going right to my, my core being, my depth. Um, so he made me a better teacher. You know, all these, I took it to mine, you know, tell, began telling more stories about how I was influenced by the elements in Hawaii and Hawaiian spirituality and so forth. So that's the transmission part of, of uh, compassion. Releasing within ourselves this authentic care for our own pain, our own fear, our own anxiety, you know, and learning the difference what real caring, concern, or kindness is. The difference between that and and uh, rejecting or fearing our hurt and our pain. That's very powerful. That, that brings us closer to ourselves. We start to learn how to take care our, of ourselves when we are afraid. You know, we're afraid all the time of something. Or when we do feel doubt or self-doubt or inadequate or shame. To have that powerful compassion and remember it's always a pleasant feeling tone even for one moment, starts to open the doors. It starts to create this protective field of wake, of rest, of seclusion. And what we have to offer the world is um, we're, we're a refuge where other people feel cared for. Wherever they're at, you know, however they're hurting, whether it's just in a moment or they're in some long, difficult process of pain. They feel our genuine care and presence. And we may not have to do a thing or say a word. And yet they know. You know, and our wisdom will say, if it's timely or appropriate, to say something or do something to make them feel cared for or seen, recognized, valued. Um, but knowing what that is in ourselves and just showing up for whoever is in pain is a, is a refuge for people. And that's a, a great gift we give them. So I'm going to stop there, except I'll quickly, because you'll be thinking about, you know, what's the near and far enemy of Mudita and Upeka? So I'll just give you those so you'll be satisfied so mudita's near enemy, something that looks like empathetic joy, you know, and this is appreciative joy. It's a deep, genuine uh, joy that we take wherever there's happiness, or wherever we see uh, uh, anyone feeling fulfilled or in their element, uh, in in art or spiritual practice or whatever work they love, and and um, we take such appreciative joy in their happiness, in their fulfillment. So the near enemy is um, um, kind of like an excitement or over-exuberance. So it's, it's, uh, it's feeling joy with a hook. And, and, and you feel that sensation that it's not this you know, unfettered, unbridled, um, pure joy and delight in other people's happiness or in our own, for that matter. It's hard to access joy. And I'll spend a lot more time on this in the, in the next night because this is one of the most powerful Brahma-viharas to, to heal our areas of unworthiness and shame and self-doubt and so forth. The far enemy, um, also important to understand, is envy and jealousy. Uh, and uh, either our envy and jealousy of other people's happiness or feeling other people's envy and jealousy with our happiness, which is very, very painful and poisonous you know, and, and based on the deepest level on shame. So it's important that we, that we go there and, and work with that. And for, for upeka, our equanimity, mental equipoise, evenness of mind, 
non-attachment, non-reactivity. Those are all the all names for the same thing. This upeka, this very even non-reactive mind. The near enemy that's many, many times mistaken for real equanimity and something we've used our entire lives as one of our survival strategies, our protective measures, is indifference. It's it's an uncaring kind of evenness. It's a disconnect. It's an insensitive, you know, uh, impartiality, insensitive. Whereas real equanimity is totally attuned and, and sensitive to what's happening. In fact, the most intimate relations that we have with another person or the, with ourselves or with the world comes out of this, this evenness of mind because the far enemy is reactivity. The near enemy, indifference, insensitivity, disconnect, numbing out, and so forth. You can see why they're protective measures. Because from a young age, in many ways, we're all overwhelmed by something. The far enemy, reactivity. Reactivity is anything we like or anything that's pleasant or pleasurable, we grasp at, we attach to, we cling to. And reactivity is anything that's um, unpleasant, displeasurable, painful, difficult. We want to push away or we fear or we suppress. That's, that's the reactive mind. It's easy to know because it, it doesn't feel still. Just like it's easy, it'll get easy to know indifference because we, f- we don't feel connected which is one of the primary powers of all four Brahma-viharas. So it's very subtle and and, um, it has the most wisdom because of that, because it's so subtle. And none of the other Brahma-viharas could sustain their their nature, you know, their purity, without the equanimity. So I'm coming back to where I started. Every moment we feel equanimity, I mean metta in this first days that we're practicing metta, all the other Brahma-viharas are there. You know, and we're going to go through all the Brahma-viharas in this retreat, so you get a taste of them all. But we're, we're, we're grounding powerfully, physically, emotionally, and through the senses on, on metta. Because without that foundation, you know, it's, um, or let's put it this way, with that foundation, it makes it much easier to know and understand and practice the, the other ones. Compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So I'll, I'll wind up with this um, William Butler Yeats poem called The Winding Stair. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, and the, the winding stair, stair is said to uh, confront the desire to destroy the noble or excellent. And it tells us to cast out remorse. It tells us how necessary that is. So the poem is, I am content to follow to its source every event in action or in thought. Measure the lot. Forgive myself the lot. When such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into the breast. We must laugh and we must sing. We are blessed by everything. Everything we look upon is blessed. That's the four Brahma Viharas. Just sit a moment and, and, and call up one of them. See what comes easily. See if you can feel it first as sensation in the body and then as emotion also in the body.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.